Well, welcome, and uh, this is No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. It looks like I'm having a little issue with my camera, so uh, I do have a face for audio, though, so it's working out. Let's talk about today as usual. Uh, We'll see if we can get that fixed as we move along, but to begin, I saw a young man on social media recently announced that although raised Catholic, he no longer believes in God. And when asked why, he scoffed and said, because science, as if one could not accept modern scientific discoveries and still believe in God. Uh, This, of course, is a false dichotomy, often debunked. But it has become fashionable, again, to equate religious faith with gullibility. You yourself have been accused of being gullible for your faith, because having faith means believing in things that you cannot prove, at least uh, not empirically. Uh, And when I'm asked to defend religious faith, I typically turn to the chicken soup explanation. Now, the official argument is in Aquinas, but this is the shorthand version. Say you want some chicken soup. What do you do? You go to the supermarket, you find the soup aisle, you locate a can of Campbell's chicken soup, and you purchase it. But why, when you have no proof that the can contains chicken soup? The label, you say. Well, the label is not proof. The wrong label may have been put on by mistake, or someone at the soup factory may, for their own reasons, have purposely mislabeled the can. It might be tomato soup or or baked beans or creamed corn, for that matter. When you think about it, there's a hundred things that might be in that can, and yet you buy it. And simply put, since you don't have proof, you buy it on faith. And why? It's because your supermarket put the can in the soup aisle. Campbell's is a reputable company, and your own experience buying their products routinely demonstrates that the contents of their cans conform to the words on the label. Now, does that make you gullible? No, because you have good reasons for your faith. Faith and gullibility both entail trusting in which that which cannot strictly be proven. But the distinction is that faith has good reasons for this trust. Gullibility does not. And obviously, many of the greatest intellects in in the world have investigated the reasons for the Catholic faith and been converted by God's grace. And many great scientific discoveries like genetics and, and the Big Bang Theory have been made precisely by Catholics. And all this leads me to another point and a related distinction, and one that is of special concern to us today and to believing Catholics in general, that between religious faith and a particular kind of gullibility namely superstition. On August 17, the the National Catholic Register blog put up a post from one Patty McGuire Armstrong called, Can You Recognize Superstition When You See It? Take this 10-point quiz to find out. (laughs) Now, the writer claims that Catholics can easily slip into superstition and that exorcists warned against getting involved in superstitions since they can potentially open the door to demonic powers. And she shares the scriptural warning from Leviticus 19.31, do not consult mediums or seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. Naturally, seeking to consult with ghosts and spirits is forbidden by the first commandment. But the verse in Leviticus also leaves room for the fact that mediums and wizards are just as likely to be frauds as to be genuinely in contact with the ghost of your dear departed Uncle Louis. But genuine or not, trusting to powers that do not come from God is a sin. So Armstrong devised a a quiz to help identify common spiritual traps based, she says, 
on many interviews with exorcists over the years and witnessing good Catholics put faith into superstitious beliefs. And here's just a selected few of the 10 true or false questions from her quiz. True or false? Reading horoscopes just for fun is not a problem if you don't believe in them. Ah, yes, the for entertainment purposes only. (laughs) That, by the way, is the disclaimer you will find in the fine print of the many ads for psychic hotlines and so on, to avoid charges of fraud. In any event, the answer is false. Catechism of the Catholic Church 2116 says, all forms of divination are to be rejected. And consulting horoscopes and astrology are specifically mentioned and backed up with references to scripture. So in other words, if the objection to reading horoscopes is not being taken seriously, it's really the Bible and the catechism that are not being taken seriously. So seriously, skip the astrology column and read the funny papers instead. All right, true or false? Blessed metals can be used for spiritual protection. That's true. Once they're blessed, religious metals become sacramentals and really do offer spiritual protection. What's important to remember is that the metal has no inherent power. Dominican Father Vincent Serpa gives a satisfactory explanation. He says, it would be a matter of superstition if we believed that a piece of metal had the power to protect us from harm. But this is not what we believe. It is only the power of God that can protect us. It so happens that uh, at times God has revealed either directly or through one of his saints that he will grant protection or healing by the wearing of a medal that represents our faith in his love for us. In her article, Armstrong quotes author Alison Gringas to the effect that sacramentals are mystical, but not magical. They are reminders, not talismans. They are avenues of grace, but do not give grace. Rather, she says, they are beautiful, tangible ways to embrace the abundant grace God has for each of us. Grace is undeserved yet freely given gift of his Holy Spirit within each of us, helps us to follow his will for us, grow in holiness, and continually offer our yes to being his beloved sons and daughters. Unquote. And that's no nonsense. True or false? Curses are real and can harm you. This is a popular topic these days, isn't it? Curses, even generational curses you hear about. Now, according to the article, whether you should be afraid if someone puts a curse on you depends on you. Still, exorcists frequently see people suffering from curses. It goes on to quote exorcist priest Father Vincent Lampert to the effect that with faith, we need not fear evil. He says, quote, the power of God is greater than the power of evil. I don't carry a bag of tricks with me. I bring the power and authority of Jesus Christ that he has given to his church. If we stay away from the occult, go to mass, have faith in God and pray, we are protected and even a curse will bounce off us. The devil is already on the run if you're going to church, and especially if you're receiving communion. Unquote. I would hasten to add receiving communion worthily. According to Father Lampert, people who want relief from evil need to grow in faith. If they're not going to change anything about their life, then throwing holy water at them and praying will do nothing, he said. They have to be willing to pray and draw closer to God. All right, and one more. 
True or false? Praying the same short prayer over and over like a mantra is more superstitious than prayerful. And that's false. That's the that's the vain repetition argument. You know, this first reared its ugly head during the so-called Reformation. The King James Version of Matthew 6, verse 7 says, When you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. Now, it is true, of course, that the Hail Mary, for example, is repeated many times during the Rosary. And the Byzantine Christians have a long tradition of continually repeating the Jesus Prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But not all repetition is the vain repetition condemned by Jesus. No sincere prayer is vain, no matter how often it's repeated. It was Jesus himself who told the story of the humble publican who went on, uh, kept repeating the prayer, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And he went home justified, whereas the proud Pharisee went away unjustified even after his long-winded extemporaneous prayer. Isaiah the prophet saw a vision of angels before the throne of God repeating, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Four hundred years later, St. John saw a vision of heaven, and those angels were still before the throne of God, still repeating the same prayer, and they will never stop repeating it for eternity. Now, repeating a short prayer like the Hail Mary, especially when meditating on the mysteries of the life of Christ, connects you with God. Mantras, not connecting with God, but believing the words to have some inherent power, that's, that's a cult, or at least pagan. And this is just a few selections from the ten true or false questions from her quiz. And if you'd like to see the rest, I put the URL in the show notes. And I will give Patty McGuire Armstrong the last word. She says, Staying away from superstition means not entertaining practices that break the first commandment, not even just for fun. Any claim of power not coming from God is against him. Only God can pour blessings upon us and protect us from evil. And that's no nonsense. All right, uh, off to a good start. When we come back, we're going to be looking uh, later on at the gospel for the 13th Sunday after Pentecost and talking about um, spiritual leprosy, as well as the, the kind of leprosy that our Lord healed the 10 lepers from. Okay, <laughs> Sorry, I need to stop and expect right now. Just straighten those words out, but you know what I mean. Uh, we're also going to be... Uh, Picking up where we left off with the eight modern errors that Catholics should know and avoid that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. Also, um, a little something about a, kind of an update on the, the Tupperware scandal that happened at World Youth Day this year. Uh, just going to kind of look at that and how it relates to another topic I brought up a couple of weeks ago, which is the abomination of desolation, which I believe we're seeing in our churches today. So you're going to want to stay tuned for all of that and uh, lots more as we uh, come back, when we come back, I should say, with lots more no-nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And I'm sorry to say my camera's not working, so I can't see the clock. And I don't know. And, and uh, since we're doing Zoom this week instead of Skype, I also, the lag is, can't hear the music. So coming right back after this.
Matthew Wong for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Glad to see we got the camera back up and working, although I you know, apologize that uh, this is the face you have to look at, but <laughs> nothing I can do about that. Okay, a few weeks ago, uh, I talked about the heresy of universalism, which is the false notion that everybody's going to heaven without regard to their religious beliefs or their moral behavior. And then I discovered that Monsignor Charles Pope had written an article for National Catholic Register called Eight Modern Errors Catholics Should Know and Avoid, which listed universalism among these seven other common errors altogether in one place. And so I decided to, to kind of unpack that here on the program. Because he says that although these errors are common in the world, that he's presenting them, these, on these eight especially, as problematic because you find them in the church as well. Sadly, they are commonly expressed by Catholics and represent a kind of infection, he says, which reflects worldly and secular thinking rather than godly and spiritual thinking. Now, two weeks ago, we covered the error of preaching mercy without reference to repentance and what Monsignor calls staurophobia, which means fear of the cross, which he says uh, manifested particularly in the reluctance of Catholics to so much as discuss the demands of discipleship. And then last week, we covered the deformation of the term dialogue and equating love with kindness, which is then connected to the next error on the list, number six, misconstruing the nature of tolerance. Monsignor says that uh, most people today equate tolerance with approval. Therefore, when many ask for or demand tolerance, what they're really demanding is approval. And this is the opposite of Christian tolerance. Tolerance uh, as a Christian virtue asks that we bear with the weaknesses, that is, the errors, even the sins of others, but without condoning the evil that they do. We do this as individuals by remaining true to our conscience and the deposit of faith. And as for the church, well, servant of God Fulton Sheen put it this way. He said, Christian love bears evil, but it does not tolerate it. It does penance for the sins of others, but it is not broad-minded about sin. The cry for tolerance never induces it to quench its hatred of the evil philosophies that have entered into contest with the truth. It forgives the sinner, and it hates the sin. It is unmerciful to the error in his mind. The sinner it will always take back into the bosom of the mystical body, but his lie will never be taken into the treasury of Christ's wisdom. Real love, he says, involves real hatred. Whoever has lost the power of moral indignation and the urge to drive the buyers and sellers from the temples has also lost a living, fervent love of truth. Charity, then, love, is not a mild philosophy of live and let live. It is not a species of sloppy sentiment. Charity is the infusion of the Spirit of God, which makes us love the beautiful and hate the morally ugly. And that's no nonsense. <clears throat> Number seven on the list is anthropocent anthropocentrism. <laughs> Say that five times fast. This term refers to the modern tendency to place man at the center of things. Anthropocentrism, man-centered, uh, and, and rather than God. It has long been a tendency in the world, I mean, ever since the Renaissance, Sadly, though, it has deeply infected the church in recent decades. Monsignor says this is especially evident in the new liturgy, and I, I, I hasten to add, not intrinsically, 
But as it's typically celebrated, something that I you know, talk about quite a bit and, and will again later this program. But Monsignor says our architecture, our songs and gestures, our um, the incessant announcements and congratulatory rituals are self-referential and inwardly focused. The liturgy, as commonly celebrated, he says, seems to be more about us than about God. And he, he points out that even the Eucharistic prayer, which is directed entirely to God, is usually celebrated facing the people. And that's a novelty that was introduced into the Catholic Church only after Vatican II. It is never good, he says, to consign God to the margins. And that's especially true in the church. He says, this marginalization of God is evident not only in the liturgy, but in parish life, which he says is often top-heavy with activism, uh, activism rooted in the corporal works of mercy, but little attention to the spiritual works of mercy. Social organizations predominate, he says, but it's hard to find interest in Bible study or traditional novenas or other spiritual works devoted to God. Announcing God through vigorous evangelization work is also rare, and the pair seems more like a clubhouse, he says, than a lighthouse. Because human beings are important, and human Christian humanism is a virtue, but anthropocentrism remains a common modern error that is rooted in excess. According to Monsignor Pope, the worship of God and the spread of his kingdom is too little in evidence in many parishes. And he singled out parents as seemingly more focused on the temporal well-being of their children, so for example, their academic uh, performance, and less concerned with their spiritual knowledge and well-being. God, he says, must be central if man is to be truly elevated. And then finally, the eighth error on Monsignor Pope's list is role reversal. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit, whom he would send to us, would, quote, convict the world, according to John 16, 8. And thus, the proper relationship of a Catholic to the world is to have the world on trial. St. Paul says, test all things, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. That's 1 Thessalonians 5. So again, the world is to be on trial based on the light of the gospel. But too often, he says, Catholics have reversed this. They put the word of God, they put the teachings of the church on trial judging them by the perspective of the world. And I would say that historical critical method of Bible study has to be the smoking gun of this error. You know, approaching the, the inspired word of God as if it were no different than any common profane writing. Monsignor Pope says we should judge all things by the light of God. Yet how often do you hear Catholics scoff at teachings that challenge worldly thinking or offend earthly priorities, especially in these latter days, uh, sexual teachings? He says, many Catholics have tucked their faith under their political views, worldviews, preferences, their own thoughts. And if the faith should conflict with any one of these worldly categories, he asks, guess which one usually gives way? Well, in Mark 8.38, Jesus says, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. But how many Catholics are ashamed of his teachings when they go against the latest popular notions of the world? Hence the name of this error, because all of this amounts to what is really a tragic role reversal, wherein the gospel is overruled by the worldly and deceitful notions. Monsignor reminds us that as faithful Catholics, 
we ought to believe that the world should be convicted by the Holy Spirit and not place Almighty God in the role of the defendant. You know, role reversal is a tragic and dangerous error. Because as St. Paul says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived. God will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap in return. The one who sows to please his flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. But the one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And that's no nonsense. And thanks to Monsignor Charles Pope for a terrific article. Uh, Okay, so this coming Sunday in the Extraordinary Form is the 13th after Pentecost. And the gospel is taken from Leviticus 17, 18, or 11, rather, through 19, where Jesus heals 10 men with leprosy. And we're reading, as has become our common custom, from the New Catholic translation of the Bible. As he continued on his journey to Jerusalem, he traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. When he entered a village, 10 lepers approached him. Standing some distance away, they called out to him, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he realized that he had been cured, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He prostrated himself at the feet of Jesus and thanked him. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Were not all ten made clean? Where are the other nine? Has no one except this foreigner returned to give thanks to God? And he said to him, Stand up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Only one of the cured lepers returned to give thanks. And not only was this man a leper, he was also a Samaritan, a race despised by the Jews as idolatrous half-breeds. There's a deep hatred between the Jews and Samaritans, because the Jews, as descendants of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, who remained faithful to the worship at the Temple of Jerusalem, saw themselves as the pure descendants of Abraham, while the Samaritans were mixed race produced by the intermarriage of the descendants of the ten northern tribes with the Gentiles after Israel's exile. So a Samaritan, therefore, was regarded as a heretic, a a traitor to his people, was even more disgraceful than a mere pagan. However, the fact that this Samaritan was more open to the Lord's call than his own people has made him an example capable of inspiring admiration from that day to this. That's a common theme in Luke. The evangelist is pointing out that God's grace is for everybody. Now, lepers uh, were required to stay away from other people and to announce their presence if they had to come near. They had would carry noisemakers and clappers and cowbells so people would know they were coming. Because to touch a leper was to become ritually unclean, that is, unable to participate in the synagogue services or temple worship and so on. But while there was no known cure at the time, leprosy sometimes went into remission. So if a leper thought his leprosy had gone away, he was obliged to present himself to a priest who would first examine him in order to declare him clean, that is, able to return to society and to to worship. But Jesus sent the ten lepers to the priest before they were healed, 
and they went. See, they responded in faith, and so Jesus healed them, as the Scripture says, on the way. So the question for us, then, is, is our trust in God so strong that we will act on what he says even before we see evidence that, that it'll work? Now, in a spiritual sense, leprosy represents sin, particularly sins of impurity, by which the soul is stained more horribly than the body is by leprosy. In the Jewish law, and you can find this in Leviticus 8, there are three kinds of leprosy. Uh, the leprosy of the flesh, the leprosy of garments, and the leprosy of houses. Now, spiritually speaking, the impure are afflicted with leprosy of the flesh, and they easily infect others, and therefore they are to be avoided. The leprosy of garments consists of scandalous fashions um, by which not just individuals but whole communities can lose their innocence. And then we'll talk about the last of these leprosies and what it all means when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio after these messages. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. We were talking about the Old Testament um, enumerating three kinds of leprosy, a leprosy of the flesh, which we said could be understood spiritually as impure persons uh, who can easily affect others and should be avoided. The leprosy of garments, which represent scandalous fashions. And I might mention back in the 1600s, uh, when Mother Mariana was granted a vision of the 20th century, she said, the shock of seeing the scandalous fashions nearly killed her. And then finally, the leprosy of houses, which the spiritual leprosy is to be found in those places where scandalous people gather to do impure things. So such persons, places, and things are to be avoided since they're infected with the leprosy of sin. And as it says in Sirach 13, verse 1, anyone who associate, associates with a proud man, and for proud, insert lewd or vain or unchaste, Anyone who associates with such a man will become like him. And that's why in the act of contrition, we firmly resolve to avoid the near occasions of sin. Um, obviously, all three spiritual leprosies of impurity are well represented on the Internet. Uh, consequently, for most of us, the Internet itself is a near occasion of sin, but one which cannot be avoided. And so I think it's interesting to note that in a revised edition of my Catholic Book of Prayers, that the act of contrition now includes the firm resolution to avoid the unnecessary occasions of sin, because some near occasions can no longer be avoided. But woe to them who voluntarily and unnecessarily remain in them. Now, we know that Christ sent the lepers to the priest to be declared clean, showing that their purification was the reward of their obedience and their faith. But Christ sending the lepers to the priest shows figuratively, or prophetically, as it were, that he who wishes to be freed from the leprosy of sin must contritely approach the priest and sincerely confess his sins and be cleansed by means of absolution. Now, Jesus healed all ten lepers, but only one returned to thank him. So clearly it's possible to receive God's gift with an ungrateful spirit. Nine out of the ten lepers did so. Only the thankful one, only the one who returned to express his gratitude, learned that his faith had played a role in his healing. 
just as today only grateful Christians really grow an understanding of God's grace. Now, God doesn't demand that we thank him, but he's pleased when we do so. And he uses our responsiveness to teach us more about himself. I noticed in, in this morning's divine office, and the, the, I think it was the first psalm prayer, uh, we ask God to give us the grace to be thankful. You know, St. Chrysostom says nothing's more acceptable to God than to be than a grateful soul. For while he daily overloads us with innumerable benefits, he asks nothing for them but that we thank him. And that's why Christ asked about the nine others who were made clean but didn't come back to give thanks. Father Goffin says it was to show how much ingratitude displeases him. Uh, Father says in his explanation of the epistles and gospels, quote, Although Christ silently bore all other injuries, yet he could not permit this ingratitude to pass unresented. And as St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, ingratitude is an enemy of the soul, which destroys merits, corrupts virtues, and impedes grace. It is a heavy wind, which dries up the fountain of goodness, the dew of mercy, and the stream of the grace of God. And so this gospel reminds us to have the attitude of gratitude by remembering to thank God in the morning and the evening, before and after meals, and as often as you experience the blessing of God in your, in your house, in your children, in, in every aspect of your life. In this way, you will continually bring upon yourself new blessings and new graces. According to St. Augustine, we cannot think or say or write anything better or more pleasing to the Almighty than thanks be to God. And that's no nonsense. Now, speaking of gratitude and ingratitude, the tempest in a teapot that greeted that viral photo of the Blessed Sacrament reserved in plastic bins at Youth Day continues. You may have seen the photo in question. It shows some young people uh, in a pop-up tent kneeling before a folding table being used as an impromptu altar of repose with a couple of others sitting and standing nearby. And on a tablecloth draped over a plas that plastic table, flanked by two candles with three large plastic stackable plastic bins, containers of the type that they sell at the hardware store. And it's been established beyond question that these bins were filled with consecrated hosts, which hosts were later removed to plastic bowls of the type you might buy at Ikea and covered with saran wrap in uh, preparation for the distribution to the you know million pilgrims at the big outdoor World Youth Day Masses. <clears throat> now, we all know, or should know, that canon law dictates that the Blessed Sacrament be reserved in a tabernacle made from suitably noble materials and that saboria and, and the other sacred vessels, at least the parts that touch the host, must be made from precious materials, preferably gold. Saboria also require a lid that is likewise made of precious materials. Now, with all due consideration, a big outdoor event probably necessitates some concessions for practical reasons. I mean, at, <laughs> at a previous World Youth Day, communion was being distributed from plastic cups like you would drink from at a backyard barbecue. So, you know, in, in that sense, the Ikea bowls are arguably a step up. But it's time, really, time to stop defending the indefensible. I saw so many people trying to defend 
this this sacrilege uh, by saying, oh, it's the best they could do under the circumstances. The best they could do. See, I call nonsense because this is far from the best they could do. The organizers of World Youth Day had no problem commissioning one time only uh, matching vestments for the Pope and all the bishops. They had plenty of money and resources for building a massive stage and equipping it with state-of-the-art lighting and sound and video reinforcement. They certainly had the wherewithal to contract top-flight entertainment, including the DJ priest who had his turntable set up directly in front of the altar where the holy sacrifice was about to take place so that the bishops could dance around in the space reserved for the most solemn act that can be offered on earth. And no doubt the organizers of this latest world youth, they faced any number of genuine, you know, logistical nightmares, all of which were, by all accounts, solved to the general satisfaction of all. But their first care should have been for Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. He is the one who should be at the center of World Youth Day and every other Catholic event. But he was not the first priority. If anything, he was treated as an afterthought, handled with all the reverence of the, of the programs and the folding chairs and all the other disposable elements of such an event. <clears throat> disposable elements of such an event. I'm sorry, my voice is going. A plastic folding table, some plastic bins, plastic bowls covered in plastic wrap. It's not clear that even the small provision made for the Blessed Sacrament, that the tablecloth and the, and the candles and some potted flowers were even made by the organizers of World Youth Day, or if they were gathered together impromptu by the scandalized faithful in an attempt to offer some modicum of reverence to our Eucharistic Lord. You know, I saw on Facebook the other day that viral photo of the tuppernacle, as it has been dubbed, set side by side with a photo of the Blessed Sacrament reserved in a real tabernacle on a portable altar during this year's traditional Catholic Shart's pilgrimage. And it was beautiful, traditional. Altar, altar cloths, tabernacle, candlesticks, flowers, just like you would find in, in a, a church or a chapel. And remember, all of this had to be carried, out, carried along, set up, taken down, set up again, as these pilgrims walked on foot from Notre Dame in Paris to Notre Dame in Chartres. Now, that's no mean feat. And yes, of course, unlike the Chartres pilgrims, the World Youth Day had vastly more hosts to reserve. But they also had millions of dollars at their disposal. The plain fact emerges that they just didn't think it was that important. They could have set up a huge tent with room for hundreds of pilgrims at a time to adore the Blessed Sacrament. It could have been beautifully appointed and filled with candles and flowers and music, and all for a fraction of what they spent on the main stage with its bizarre space-age-looking altar and matching ambo. Even if they resorted to the kind of temporary tabernacle readily available from a religious supply house, that would have been something. But reverently handling the Blessed Sacrament wasn't even on their radar. And that's indefensible. Now, you probably know Austin Ruse, he's a well-known Catholic commentator. He has a daughter who participated in the 2023 World Youth Day. In fact, she went on a full-on retreat organized by Opus Dei numeraries that started in Spain with the Camino de Santiago, that pilgrimage where you walk 100 kilometers on foot. Uh, along the way of St. James. After that, they went to Fatima, where his daughter joined the pilgrims uh, and approached the shrine at Fatima, not on foot, but on their knees. 
They're bloody knees, as Mr. Ruse points out. And from there to World Youth Day in Lisbon. And she found the first part of her retreat inspiring and spiritually edifying. World Youth Day, not so much. Not that there were not things that she liked about it. I mean, there were plenty of things that she enjoyed about it, including the DJ priest, for that matter. But it was primarily one experience that inspired the title of Mr. Ruse's article. It's on the Crisis website called They Made My Daughter Cry at World Youth Day. And I've been talking about the scandalous way that they've handled the Blessed Sacrament at World Youth Day, but this takes the cake. And she thought the low light was the immodest techno dancers gyrating in front of the Pope. But then came the all-night vigil. They brought our Lord out in a monstrance to the main stage, and she and the other pilgrims settled in for a night of Eucharistic adoration, and she had plenty to pray about. But after 30 minutes, half an hour, they removed the Blessed Sacrament. Why? In order to show a video on climate change. Ruth said his daughter burst into tears and was literally inconsolable. I know it should be remembered, this young lady, girl, really, uh, was no doubt mentally and physically exhausted, having walked 100 kilometers and undergone a succession of deeply emotional experiences. But the fact is that after 30 minutes of prayer, they removed our Lord to show a left-wing propaganda piece to the kind of rigid and doctrinally intransigent Catholic use who would choose to gather all night for adoration. And that's nonsense. And that's no nonsense. Back with more right after this. All right, I digressed a bit. <laughs> Going back uh, to the distribution of Holy Communion uh, at World Youth Day. Trying to offer communion to a crowd of a million-plus communicants is insane. I've mentioned before how there have been historic gatherings of Catholics, even here in the United States, in numbers rivaling that of World Youth Day. Rosary rallies, rallies and, and Eucharistic Congresses, for example, going back to the 1920s. And while these routinely featured hugely attended outdoor liturgies, it never occurred to the organizers to try and give communion to crowds of that size precisely because of the inevitable, unavoidable sacrilege that must attend such an endeavor. Even Benedict XVI complained about this. The fact is, they just don't care anymore. People getting communion is more important than reverently handling the Blessed Sacrament. Portuguese priest Father João Silveira was present at One World Youth Day Mass this year, where he witnessed the Blessed Sacrament being distributed in what he described as French fry bowls. Holy Communion being distributed almost exclusively by lay people, with bishops and priests standing in their place, not doing their duty. This is not an indictment of the laity, he said, who many at great sacrifice made themselves available to distribute communion. But with the 800 bishops and 12,000 priests present, one would expect them to be the ones to give a communion to the faithful, since that task is an integral part of the Sacrament of Holy Orders, which they have received. If we have our hands anointed on the day of ordination to the priesthood, it is primarily so that we can touch the Blessed Sacrament. So maybe it's time to bag World Youth Day once and for all. 
I mean, it was founded in the 80s by Pope St. John Paul II expressly to deepen the faith of young Catholics and invite non-Catholic youth to embrace the faith. So it was all about vocations and the new evangelization. Well, flash forward to 2023, and Portuguese Bishop Americo Aguiar, who will be made a cardinal by Pope Francis this September, made it clear that at this year's World Youth Day, quote, we don't want to convert the young people to Christ or to the Catholic Church or anything like that at all, unquote. I recently told you about the statistic that states 38% of newly ordained priests and newly professed religious had attended one or another of the previous World Youth Days. But I think that says more about the type of young men and women who attend World Youth Day than it does about the event itself. Because let's face it, since the founding of World Youth Day, vocations have not only not increased, they've been in virtual freefall. In 1965, at the close of Vatican II, there were 49,000 seminarians in the United States. By the year 2000, despite eight successful World Youth Days, that number fell to 4,700. And that brings me back to a topic that I talked about a couple of weeks ago. I was reading an old book. (laughs) Somebody once asked me, why do you read old books anyway? And I responded, because I'd rather be formed by the men and women who built Christian civilization than by those who are trying to tear it down. (laughs) Anyhow, I was reading a a 19th century book by a Catholic priest called Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. And one chapter was devoted to the medieval conception of the Antichrist. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago. But the author mentioned the scriptural prophecy of the abomination of desolation, Father Sabine Baring Gould. He said that the Protestant claim that the abomination of desolation, quote, is being set up in the Catholic Church, where every sanctuary is adorned with all that can draw the heart to the crucified and raise the thoughts to the imposing ritual of heaven, is a puzzle to me, unquote. Of course, when these words were written, every Holy Mass was a traditional Latin Mass, and every Catholic Church had a beautiful high altar with a tabernacle front and center, and often a beautifully appointed Eucharistic chapel as well. But it's interesting to note that he considered the abomination of desolation would be fulfilled by a barren sanctuary. But it makes sense. An abomination is a disgrace. And the word desolate means a state of bleak and dismal emptiness. This month, I had occasion to assist at the Novus Ordo Mise at a certain church in the diocese on the Feast of the Assumption and to make my Sunday obligation this past week. And it struck me that the sanctuary was desolate. Like a Calvinist church or the the stage slash sanctuary at this year's World Youth Day, with nothing but a pulpit for preaching and a table for the Lord's Supper. They also had the obligatory army of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, two, count them, two cantors, and a pair of lay lectors, one for each reading. Uh, Both the lectors and all the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and The cantors, one of the cantors, were were women. And of course, there were altar girls as well as altar boys. Now, traditionally, women were forbidden in the sanctuary. Even in the Novus Ordo, lay lectors, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, altar servers were all technically supposed to be lay men and boys. it's, It's funny to me how the women campaigning for inclusive language somehow didn't feel excluded by the wording for the requirements of lay ministries. 
Of course, altar girls were allowed by John Paul II, but female lectors and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion were, were still technically in abuse up to a year ago, even if they had long been a feature, a, a regular feature of papal masses. Thankfully, Pope Francis has solved the problem. There's no longer any issue with women in the sanctuary because he legalized the abuse. Of course, technically, the new rules call for lectors to be trained and, quote, invested in the ministry of lector and extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion and catechists as well. Although that's going to take some time to trickle down to the local parish, where, of course, it's been tolerated in spite of being an abuse for, for longer than I've been Catholic. I suspect the investure is an abuse of language to bring women one step closer to ordained ministry. But I digress. Here's what, why it's on my mind. At the masses I attended, and I live in Orange County, all the ministers of the word, priest, deacon, and lectors, had English as a second language. Now, the priest and deacon are one thing, but why in an English-speaking country, and remember, the vernacular liturgy was imposed precisely to make the readings more accessible by having them in the local language. Why did I need to suffer through several dis different mispronunciations of the word Canaanite? And the answer is simple, because there's a dearth of English first volunteers for the lecture ministry, which is, in a word, desolate. Altar service must be desolate also. And why say that? Well, why, why were altar girls allowed in the first place? Well, I was around for this one. The argument was that there weren't enough boys. See, the ministry of acolyte was desolate. Now, that's not true of extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion. There's plenty of those. But by the way, words have meaning. An extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are meant to be used only mass, And they are never, under any circumstances, to be referred to as Eucharistic ministers. But you know as well as I do that today, extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion are treated like an indispensable part of the liturgy. And when I first came to the church, our parish priest set a schedule on Sunday for, you know, which one was going to help distribute Holy Communion at which Mass. <clears throat> and they still do that at my parish today, at least for the traditional Latin Mass, because the 1962 rubrics don't provide for extraordinary ministers. But I suspect that most any parish with two or more priests and possibly a deacon has no real need for extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion who are only and ever to be used when there are not sufficient Eucharistic ministers, which means priests and deacons, available to distribute Holy Communion without causing real hardship. And, and you know, an extra five minutes for communion, which goes faster if you use a communion rail, by the way, uh, is not a real hardship. But and, and the same thing goes for lay lectors, and perhaps for them especially. They are entirely optional to begin with. They're completely non-essential. So a shortage of lay lectors isn't even a problem. If there are not enough volunteers, you simply do without. The priest or deacon is more than capable to read the readings and eminently more qualified. I suspect that there are a few of any congregations that would care one way or the other, and many who would prefer to have the priest read the readings rather than have them mangled by some layperson. And I hate to say this, but a priest can say Mass with only one server and in a pinch with none at all. He doesn't need an army of, of little girls. But the abomination of desolation must really be the empty sanctuaries. And when I say that, I mean empty of everything except a crowd of lay people, which, you know, and here we see that 
another example of that modern era of anthropocentrism. And it's all about us. The fact that there's not enough priests has everything to do with the post-Vatican II stripping of the altars. How many times have I seen photos of beautiful churches that were vandalized in the name of Vatican II in the new mass? How many pictures of beautiful marble altars and, and beloved statuary often bought at, at great sacrifice by the people that built the parishes, seen it broken to pieces with sledgehammers and thrown in dumpsters. Tabernacles and magnificent vestments consigned to, to, to basements and closets where, where, where the, the, the rust consumes and the moth, you know, you know the quote. I've seen broken marble from altars in church parking lots used as bumper blocks at the head of the parking spaces. This isn't a fantasy. It's history. And the World Youth Day Tuppernacle is just the latest in a long line of sacrileges. So, you say, that's all well and good. What can I do? I'm just one layperson. I'm just one priest, just one mom or dad. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. But he also said, with God, all things are possible. So ask instead, what can I do? If you're a priest, you can say Mass well and reverently. Uh, if, you, if you pick up my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, I have a whole chapter devoted <clears throat> to ways in which the Novus Ordo can be well celebrated that require no permissions, that require no special training, that are all um, uh, not just allowed by the general instruction, but typically are, are the, the, you know, the, the way they're supposed to be done in the first place. If you're a priest, say Mass well and reverently. Preach boldly. Don't brook any nonsense in the sanctuary. If you're a layperson, assist at Mass with attention, reverence, and devotion. Pray for the restoration of the Church. Monday of this week was the feast of Pope St. Pius X, who was the first Pope, by the way, to actively promote frequent communion. Today's faithful Catholics should take as their own his papal motto, Instaurare omnia in Christo. These words are taken from St. Paul's uh, epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 10, in the dispensation of the fullness of times to restore all things in Christ. That time is now, friend, and that's no nonsense. All right. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. You've been listening to No Nonsense Catholic. Thank you for being along with us. Next week, I'm going to be on the road, so we'll be running an encore, but I'll be back the week after that. And until then, thanks for listening, and may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>